Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get to be with all of you in this uh, Dharma field on New Year's Eve. And it may be an unusual way to spend uh, New Year's, even though I know that there are people who have come on this retreat for many years, some a couple years, some five years, some ten years, some even about 25 years, I think, have spent New Year's in this way. I was looking up uh, some resolutions that people tend to take as New Year's resolution, and uh, you'll be happy to know that you are already fulfilling many of the very top New Year's resolutions that people take. So, for example, uh, to spend less time online. You're doing that? To stop drinking or taking drugs. Doing that one. To eat healthy. Pretty much everything they serve here is healthy, so eating healthier. Stop swearing. (laughs) Since you're not really talking much at all. And some people take the resolution to spend more time meditating. So that one, you're real winners in. So So it actually is a very um, virtuous and uh, auspicious way for us to be spending this changing of the seasons. And as we know also, there's, there's ways in which you can make a plan to set something in motion and you don't know whether or not it'll actually uh, be able to come to fruition. So for all of us here, we are able to have the circumstances of our life come together of health and uh, the other things in your life being okay so you could take time away. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned uh, earlier, to be in a place that has a retreat center, to know the Dhamma, and then your own good heart to choose to spend it in this way. And in case this is not clear, you can see even from the waning numbers up here uh, that this is not always the case. You know? So uh, yeah, Catherine and uh, Yana and I talked about the streets some time ago. I'm actually uh, substituting for someone who's one of the regular teachers here who asked me to do it so he could attend a wedding, family wedding. And uh, I'm friends with Catherine and Yanai. They live far away in England. Uh, so I thought, oh, it's a n- nice thing to help a friend and good to get to spend time with uh, my dear colleagues and good way to spend the uh, New Year's season also. And we were actually very uh, diligently prepared, I'll let you know, by having many conference calls and Skypes ahead of time mm-hmm. to plan who's going to do what and all this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, you don't know what's going to happen. So, uh, yeah, it's not happened um, before to me that uh, the other teachers uh, get the flu and drop out. But uh, <laughs> so it goes, and so we're uh, continuing on. And there's a way in which I feel like we're all held in the field of Dharma. So, uh, yeah, update on their um, status is that they did get to go to the doctor today and uh, so got some uh, medication and some advice and... Um, 
So they do have to continue to rest. Uh, Catherine seemed to be feeling a little bit better, but still coughing and sputtering. Uh, Yanai, uh, after his heroic Dharma talk performance <laughs> yesterday, was totally wiped out, felled by it. So um, you know, we hope they'll be better by the end of the retreat, but it's not totally clear, and better for them to rest and also not uh, spread germs too. So. Fortunately, though, we did put out the call to the uh, Dharma All-Stars of Barrie, Massachusetts. <laughs> so you're in good hands. So um, before I thought that, you know, maybe only Tara and I would be carrying it, but actually tomorrow a couple of teachers who um, teach here regularly and teach at the Forest Refuge will come to help with the uh, group meetings. So Winnie Nazarko, some of you may know, uh, dear friend and teacher who trained with me and lives in Barrie, and then Susan O'Brien, who's been a long-time teacher here also. So they have agreed to come and help out. And then uh, also Caroline Jones will come and uh, share a Dharma talk tomorrow night. So she is the resident teacher at the Forest Refuge. So uh, she also has a British accent, in case you came for that. Um, they all have generously agreed to come on New Year's Day to help out with this retreat. So. Uh, appreciate their um, dedication to the Dharma and their service in this way. So I thought I'd just talk to you a little bit tonight about the Dharma and help to frame what it is that we're up to here. And I know many of you have done many retreats, so some of this will be review, but it always helps to hear it a different way or hear it again and again, allow things to sink in more and more. So first place to start very simply is what is the Dharma? This Dharma teaching, Dharma training, we talk about this fairly often, but what does this mean? In the beginning of the retreat also we did a taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. And as I was saying, we we are taking refuge in this Dhamma field. Uh, There's a way in which one translation of the Dhamma is about the teachings of the Buddha. There's also a way in which it can be translated as nature or the truth of the way things are. So the Buddha was a human being who lived in 6th century BC in northern India. And he went on his own spiritual quest, you could say. He went on his own uh, retreats to try to understand suffering, the end of suffering, life, Uh, what's true about this world. And through his practice, he came to this understanding about the truth of the way things are. And this is one of the translations of Dhamma, so of nature. So one thing that is comforting to me sometimes or helpful about remembering that is that even if the Dharma teaching sometimes can seem challenging or complicated or not always know what they mean immediately. There's a way in which what the Buddha is teaching is that which we can discover through our own experience. So it's not a strange esoteric philosophy he made up in the woods and that now you have to uh, memorize and uh, figure out intellectually. So it's actually something that's true about everything in our lives, everything in an experiential world. And it's as true now as it was 
in the 6th century BC. So even though at that time there were uh, ox carts and blacksmiths and no smartphones and uh, no Wi-Fi or cars, Still these fundamental things about the truth of the way things are. Who are we? What is experiential reality? And how do we relate to that in a skillful way? And what's true about life and death, time? All of these are essentially the same. So as we practice here on retreat, we're developing this different way of knowing with mindfulness. So it's, it's cultivating a, a particular and unique facility, you could say, a faculty, that it's unusual for us to spend time engaged with. And through engaging with the practice of awareness, we can learn to see, through our own direct experience, aspects of the truth the way things are, that can help us to align more with that. So as we align more with that, as we live more in accordance with that, then we live lives of greater contentedness, of greater happiness, more peace, and less stress, less suffering. So the, the law of uh, the Dharma, this natural law, is kind of like laws that we also have understood in the physical world. And one example is the law of gravity. So for small children, they're not born as babies. None of us are born knowing about the physical world in this way. So we're not born knowing about the law of gravity. And sometimes you'll see small children uh, experimenting and learning about this. So at Christmas time, I got to meet a new baby in my family and observe this uh, in action. So, you know, she would be like sitting there in high chair and then maybe drop something off and then watch it fall. Right? <laughs> and then it's like, what happens on this side? Right? <laughs> the same thing happens, right? And then what happens if you're not looking? And then you know, <laughs> the same thing happens, right? So then after a while, you get the, the hang of it. You get the pattern, right? And so all of us as adults have basically understood that about the law of gravity. So then when I try and put something like this mug down, you know, I know it's not a good idea to put it in midair. Right? <laughs> if I do, the same thing will happen, happen to all that stuff. It will be drawn to the ground very quickly. It will break. This will splash and splash on the people in the front, big mess. So better I keep it on something, flat surface like that. More advanced law of gravity is this thing is slanted. Even this would not be a good thing to put it on. So, you know. so basically we learn to live in accordance with this law. And you do that at this point as adults without having to think about it. Right? Like without having to uh, consciously figure it out each time. You don't have to understand the mathematical formula for gravity. You don't have to even know, like, oh, who runs it? Is there someone running that? <laughs> you know? It actually doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. Uh, it's just part of the way things operate in the physical world. And so you know that in order to live in greater harmony with less messes and spills and broken glasses and things like that, uh, you live in accordance with that. 
And supposing at some point you know, uh, something happens accidentally, like that gets knocked off, because I've understood how this law of gravity works through my own direct observation, then I don't need to fret about it. So I understand, I can just pick it up, put it back, and it's not really a problem. Right? So minus the added taking it personally that sometimes we do with the laws we don't understand. So I don't need to, when this thing falls, be like, why me? Why does it happen to me? Why now? Why only me? Why only now? It doesn't make sense to say that, right? Because we've observed this as universal law. It's something we're all subject to. It's not personal. So live in accordance with that and uh, have a life of greater harmony. So this can be good news to you that you already have learned about some of these laws. <laughs> and uh, the laws in the Dharma are more subtle ones that we haven't necessarily had the ability to tune into. We haven't known how to tune into yet. But now through the teachings and frameworks and through the practice, we get a chance to dedicate ourselves to understanding these laws, to understanding them through our own experience and the alignment that can happen is something that happens on a deeper than intellectual level. So as we see through our own experience uh, aspects of the way things work, then we can have insights which in some ways kind of rewire our system and help us to lead lives that are more harmonious with less suffering. So there are many different aspects of this that uh, we will describe as we go through the retreat. So one of them is uh, understanding about what experiential reality is, that which we call our world, uh, that which we call our life. So according to the, the, the Buddha and Buddhist psychology, what we usually call our life is actually the unfolding of experience through six different sense fields, or sense doors, you could say. So seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing. And the sixth sense field, sense door, is actually the mind. So basically everything that's happened to you in your life, no matter how good or bad or profound or mundane, could be categorized as an experience that happened through one of these sense fields. So basically you have an eye, and if the eye is operating, then if there's a consciousness and there is a sight, the experience of seeing arises. If there is uh, ears that are working and there is consciousness, i.e. you're alive, and then there is an experience of sound, then hearing happens. Uh, and so on and so forth, can go through all of the sense doors. So now these experiences are happening in rapid succession. They're happening very quickly. And usually for us, we don't discern the difference between them uh, or the way in which they're arising and passing away. So then it seems like the world is solid. This is me. This is you. Uh, It seems like uh, everything is constructed in this way and we have this illusion in some ways of solidity, uh, of permanence. Based on that illusion, we start to 
infuse things, people's experiences with some sense of reliability that cannot be found in something that is always changing. And when you try to rely on something that is inherently unreliable, changeable, then you will be disappointed. So in a certain way, intellectually, it makes sense. And you can see this happening for yourself over and over again in your life, in big ways and then in small ways. And really, the more of a refined way in which we see this, the more freedom we can have. So for example, in this um, situation here, you know, we did have some expectation, uh, like, oh yeah, so Yana and Catherine will be here, they're the teacher of the retreat, it's going to happen like this. And uh, look, things changed. <laughs> so the Buddha taught among the uh, aspects that is particularly helpful for us to notice is unreliable is the body. And not just Yana and Catherine's bodies. <laughs> yeah. Like all of us, all of our bodies. So all of us are subject from the moment of birth to being injured and getting sick, certainly getting older. And we have no way of stopping that. You know, there's no escape from that. So no matter how clever you are or rich or anything, famous, no way out of that. Our body is subject to sickness. Eventually, we're going to die, just like everyone who's ever lived. So you can notice ways in which you might have some uh, expectations. And I started to notice this when you know, I get surprised by something or disappointed by something. It's like, oh yeah, I had some uh, expectation. I had some investment in it being this way. And then more and more I notice the mind is turning towards like being interested. Like, oh look, things aren't what you expected. Like, let's see how things unfold. And noticing that the mind that has this idea like, oh, it should be just like this and that's the best way and that's the only way and I know the right thing that's going to happen and if it doesn't happen, it's definitely going to be worse than my idea of it. You know? <laughs> like, like, we don't know. You know, like we really don't know uh, how things unfold, what all of the conditions are, or even necessarily what's better, what's worse in some way. But the mind does tend to react. So in a world in which things are changing and they're not changing in ways that are under our control, as I mentioned, it's a very fragile place to put our sense of well-being or happiness in wanting things to play out according to our script. For our body, for the weather, uh, for politics, for just about anything. But you can notice this again and again, the ways in which we almost very poignantly seek a sense of security in circumstances that are not designed to deliver that.
So I don't, uh, I don't remember when I um, agreed to uh, teach this retreat if I totally was aware of how cold it gets here in the, <laughs> in the winter. And as we approached this time, I started noticing the forecast and actually started texting Tara's pictures of the Barry, Massachusetts forecast since <laughs> we're both from San Francisco where, you know, cold as it gets in the dead of night is like 49 degrees Fahrenheit, you know. But so, you know, I came here and um, the center, they keep it um, nicely heated. But I went to my um, residence there, uh, the the teacher residence we have, and uh, it was freezing cold in there. So I looked and saw that the back door was open. There's front door and back door. The back door is open for some reason. And then I tried to close it and it was apparently frozen (laughs) open, right? So somehow the door had expanded. I don't know, something so... So it was really cold. So then um, I tried, you know, contact people, figure out how to get this dealt with because I didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, so eventually they figured out something and shoved newspaper in it and this and that. And then uh, it was reasonably equanimous with that one. And then went to the uh, the car. So there was a little car to go back and forth. And in the good weather, I like to walk, but um, you know, this is like way too cold. So I take the little car, and then I noticed the car has ice on the inside of the car. <laughs> so not just on the windshield, which I'm used to. You can, like, I know, scrape that off, and I was like, oh, the inside of the car. And so then um, the thought did occur to me at that point. I was like, this is a frozen hellscape here. <laughs> and there's actually in the Buddhist cosmology, like, different hell realms, some of which are, some of which are hot and some of which are cold. So. Um, but I noticed the mind like starting to go in that direction and, um, you know, it could easily get revved up. Like there's sort of a script I could go through for this, right? And it could be like, you know, um, yeah, blaming the center for this car or, you know, the person I agreed to sub for or, you know, going into like, I'm actually the first person in my family born outside of tropical uh, landscapes. So I'm like genetically engineered for very different, <laughs> like, Thing. So, you know, it could get in the mind or, you know, and it's so much better in San Francisco now. And But the truth is, it's not. Like, we actually have had all these forest fires there, you know, and we've had uh, earthquakes. And so there's no place on Earth, actually, that is uh, totally perfect, you know. There's nowhere like that. I taught a retreat in uh, Hawaii a few months ago, uh, which also will probably sound good right now, uh, but in the center there, you know, they have a lot of insect infestations and uh, there's snakes. You know, there's like various, or maybe not snakes, they have like mongooses, some, any other various animals and insects that certainly are not bugging us here, you know, for that way. So it's good to catch the mind, right? Like basically what's happening is like an experience of coldness, something unexpected, ice on the inside of the windshield, right? And then it's like, okay, it could be just as it is, and you could deal with it. Um, Or the mind can add on to that and start to spin out about that. And it's really helpful to start to notice this on retreat. You know, one of the beauties of the, the simplicity of retreat is that we have the opportunity to observe the way in which we're constantly creating these worlds. We're like creating these worlds through our minds, and then we inhabit them. So we create these worlds of, oh, it's better over there than over here. 
or we create a world in which uh, that person is better or worse than me. Or we create a world in which uh, I'm a really great meditator or I'm a really terrible meditator. Or we can create a world in which uh, we judge how other people are moving or doing their job or any number of things. So also a lot of the retreat is observing the creation of these worlds and the creation of suffering that comes about through this. So it's, it's difficult to see. And you know, certainly when people go on retreat, they don't uh, think like, oh, let me go become intimate with suffering. Right? Let me learn about that. But really the only way out is to recognize this. So with these experiences with the apartment being cold or the car being cold, and the first thing is I had to recognize, like, oh, okay, what's going on? It's really cold. And then investigate. Okay, why is it cold? Like, okay, the door is open. Then, okay, try to close it up. Doesn't seem to close, right? So in some way we're getting to do that with our mind, too, with our body and mind, is observe the ways in which, oh, there's some suffering here in the system. You know, there's some dukkha here. There's pain, difficulty, distress. So, okay, what's going on? Now, our usual recipe is to point the finger outwards. So the problem is uh, that guy and how he's breathing. Or uh, the problem is that uh, my knee, this uh, pain in the knee. The problem is that uh, the lunch wasn't what I wanted it to be. The problem is that that person is cleaning their dish too slowly in the dish line. Too mindful, right? (laughs) So it's helpful to to see that, to observe the way in which we are uh, pointing the finger outward all the time, right? Looking for for sort of our recipe for well-being inherent in that is I will be happy I will find peace, I will find contentedness when everything in my world aligns to exactly how I want it to be. And you know, when I say it like that, it sounds uh, like a very fragile way to seek happiness. Right? So I'll be happy when everybody uh, says only the things to me that I want them to say to me, right? in exactly the tone of voice that I want them to say it, uh, at exactly the right time. I will be happy when... Uh, Everyone around me walks at the pace I would like them to walk. (laughs) I will be happy when the weather is exactly the way that I want it to be. I will be happy when uh, all political decisions uh, unfold exactly how I want them to. So even on a smaller level, we have this idea, I will be happy when everything in my life is good. So let's say you have these different areas of your physical health and financial well-being, your family life, your creative life. Maybe you could have include your automotive life or uh, your... Um, you could include maybe 10 different areas and you say like, okay, um, I'll be happy when all of these on a scale of 1 to 10 are at 10. And then my recipe for well-being is going to be to get them all to 10 and to hold them there forever. So we have that as an idea, right? Like underlying in the back is like, okay, I'm just trying to machinate samsara, you know, try to massage everything in some way to get it to be exactly like I want it to be. And then I'm going to hold it there. And 
it would be a good strategy if it's not impossible, right? Like it's impossible based on the way things are, you know, based on even one of these factors, the weather, right? It's never going to be fully in accordance with what we want. Our physical body, you know, maybe right now it's okay, but in a moment it's going to be less okay. Certainly if we add in scripting everyone around us, you know, that's not a very good recipe for happiness, for well-being. So this path is really one of getting to observe and understand, okay, suffering and the end of suffering. You know, what is the nature of, of dukkha, of this strain, stress, suffering, dissatisfaction, difficulty in life? And then this path is promising, is leading towards a well-being, a contentedness, a happiness that is beyond changing circumstance. So you could say that this awakening, uh, enlightenment, is both uh, aligning with the truth of the way things are, this way of full alignment, but also it's finding the well-being and happiness that's possible for all of us, that's beyond getting what you want in any given particular moment. And it's really hard to believe this. You know, it's really hard to believe that that's possible. And it's not to say that it's not good to get pleasant things or to have things go your way. Because uh, it is. It's nice when those things happen. It's only that it's so fragile, right? It's not reliable. It's not going to last. So how's it going to be when things change? So regarding being on retreat, particularly I, I would encourage you to notice when you're labeling your meditation as good or bad. And it's really easy to consider, oh, things are good in meditation, in the retreat, when things are pleasant. When in some ways things seem to be going my way. So that includes the physical body, and that includes the mind, that includes concentration, uh, that includes all these different factors. And it's true that we are cultivating the development of many positive factors of heart and mind, but it's really a very vast landscape that we're exploring. The Dharma is vast and our development is not linear. So there's times when you could have a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain. So usually we'll label that as bad, bad meditation, can't wait till it gets better. And this is actually a good opportunity to learn about the way the body operates, the way the mind operates. Expand our ability to be able to be okay with different phenomenon in these six sense fields whether or not they are momentarily arising to our liking. So you can notice if you ever have a voice telling you, like, my meditation would be good if not for blank. So if not for this knee pain, if not for this cold. I know some people have cold here. If not for uh, this person in front of me. It would be good if uh, Catherine and Yanai were here. Like, right. So we can come up with all these different ideas about like, oh, if only this circumstance, that circumstance, the other one. 
So notice that because usually then that's actually the helpful thing to pay attention to. That is not the obstacle to your awakening. That is the doorway to your awakening. So we expect the doorway to awakening to be beautiful, gilded, music coming out of it, (laughs) shining light, so gorgeous. But what if it's a pain in your toe? What if it's sleepiness? What if it's doubt? So it's possible. It's possible to consider that because every moment has everything that we need to see through to complete freedom. I know there's a lot of people here who have uh, come on retreats before, this retreat and other ones. Uh, And most people here have done some meditation. So for you, I'd also like to highlight to notice if you're comparing this retreat to past retreat. Notice if you're comparing your meditation practice now to some memorable past sitting that you have held in your mind as like the gloried uh, (laughs) high point of your meditation career. And notice if there's a part of you that's keeping on trying to get back to that in some way. So this is also a habit of mind, a pattern that we have. And it's, it's actually very painful once you start to notice that. In some way you could say it's not being able to be fully where we are. You're not being able to know circumstances as they are. But wanting things to be some other way from the past or from our imagination, from our projection, from something we read. And there's something painful about that. It's almost like we're uh, talking to someone and that we're wishing there were someone else. You're spending time with someone, in this case yourself, and you're wanting that person to be different. You know? You're looking over the shoulder of that person for someone better to come along. So sometimes we call this uh, dragging around the corpses of your past retreats. <laughs> it can be very heavy. <laughs> And very smelly, and uh, <laughs> yeah. So, if you notice this, you could uh, try to have a little sense of humor about it and try to put it down. Yeah. So, okay, these are the circumstances here, this retreat. It is as it is. Uh, let me see what's here. Because when we're trapped by our ideas of what something should be like, because in the past or because we imagine. Uh, someone else had this experience, we miss what is actually here now. We're actually limited by our vision of what we have experienced already. So it can prevent our continued development to be stuck in some way. So it could be that you're still arriving here. And if that feels like the case, then it's totally fine. So as I mentioned, just be very patient with yourself, your sleepiness, your restlessness, the sneeziness, whatever it is. 
it helps to have a humility as we enter retreat. So notice if there is any time when you're in your practice of sitting or in walking and the mind is bored. It's like, I know what this next step is going to feel like. I know what this breath is going to feel like. Yeah, yeah, in, out, I know this. So this, this attitude, this know-it-allness, is actually uh, also an obstacle to our presence. And it's just a, a, a film, because we don't actually know how things are. We don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. We don't know what this next breath is going to be like. We don't know what this next step is going to be like. So it can take reminding us of that, and notice Sometimes you can notice the mind that's complaining about this, uh, almost like it's like a cranky child who's there. You know, like, all right, this is walking with bratty mind. Okay, this is walking with bored mind. This is walking with sleepy mind. So in our practice, as we sink in, we've been emphasizing the connection to the physical body. Uh, particularly this experience of touch. It could be also the noticing of sound. And it's a good place to ground our attention. And I encourage you as much as possible in all your movements, even when standing up in the hall, putting on your coat, washing your hands. Allow yourself the almost the luxury of the time and attention to really feel like what that's like. Like almost in this artistic way. Like everything can be this beautiful ceremony in which our presence can imbue it with a different quality than when we do things half-heartedly or in a rush. So a beautiful thing about retreat is that you don't have that many things that you have to do. So take your time and allow yourself to feel with which as close attention as possible the details. So the sense of the temperature of the air, uh, the feeling of the pressure of your foot, the sense of warmth that comes when you put on your shoe or your jacket. So everything like that, just allow yourself to know with a lot of specificity in some ways, the experience of the body, the experience of aliveness in this way. And we can also practice at different speeds. So part of our practice here also is the different uh, yogi jobs that people have or the uh, work meditation, now they call it. And most of the activities that you have as a work practice is probably something that you also have to do at home. So dusting, sweeping, washing dishes, cleaning the floor, folding towels. So I would encourage you to look at this work meditation period also equally as part of your practice. 
So both as part of our practice of community, of supporting each other, and an act of kind of generosity to keep our sangha, our community going here. But also it's a good place to bring presence and in some ways be as sincere about your practice in your work meditation as you might be in your sitting practice or in a walking period. So as such also, try to maintain the solitude. So try to not talk to people or to put it stronger, don't talk to people. You might notice also that someone in your area is doing something in a way that uh, you would not prefer. Silently note that to yourself, but leave them alone. (laughs) If there's some big problem with something, you could write a note to the manager or the kitchen or something and let them sort it out. But really allow each other to have our own practice, our own experience. We also become very sensitive on retreat. And so, uh, yeah, don't interfere with each other through writing notes or... Uh, communication in different ways. And that would be an act of generosity for others as well as helping you to stay connected in your own practice. So we all take refuge in the Dhamma here. We take refuge in the truth of the way things are. And we take refuge in that which is larger than just ourselves, our problems, our stress. We're all resting in that here together. We're in this field. And uh, sometimes I think about these um, sabutans, zafus, and even the chairs. They're like little dharma cookers for you. So you come in for each period and it's like, You're sitting on your cooker, and you're getting cooked here, right? (laughs) The walking meditation, maybe it's like a moving thing, you know, but still, it's like... So your job is just to show up and be as present as you can, be as curious as you can, be as steady as you can, and then just allow the Dharma to unfold in its own way, which might be different than you expected. It might be different than the last time. It might be different what you imagine is happening with that person over there. But we're really in a good place. We're very fortunate to be here together, to take refuge and to spend this last day and then first week of the new year in virtuous community, in noble practice, as many have done for centuries and as many are doing right now in all different countries around the world. So thank you for your practice here. Thank you for your sincerity in being here, choosing to spend your time in this way. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So you might have noticed that there was a special schedule update that included uh, such exciting schedule listings as festive offering. (laughs) 
which comes next. Now, I don't even totally know what the festive offering is, um, but I think it is a treat from the kitchen for us in honor of the year turning. So we'll have a opportunity to silently partake in our festive offering, and uh, you can enjoy that in a mindful way. And then we'll come back and we will uh, sit together for our final official sitting of the evening, um, during which we'll do some uh, chanting. So we'll chant the refuges, we'll chant the precepts, uh, we'll do some special New Year's uh, metta practice. And then uh, if you didn't take a piece from the table, there's one that is about uh, reflections on the sharing of blessings. So we'll get to learn that chant too. So wishing you Happy New Year these last uh, hours that we have together. And we can continue to celebrate the new year by being as present as possible as we can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.